For those of you who haven't uh, been with us recently, we're in John chapter 17. My uh, son Josh, he's going off to uh, Sweden and Denmark in a few weeks, and there's a big training camp, and he told the coach yesterday at soccer, they're doing a training camp, two-a-days. Uh, he won't be at uh, soccer tomorrow because he has church, and the guy who's the coach is like, actually, that's where I should be. But my brother has a friend who's not a Christian at all, and neither is his family, and, and uh, so the, the friend of his is a little bit lazy, actually. Good player, but... Uh, he said, oh, well, I'm going to be with Josh at church. So we actually got someone to come to church because of sheer laziness. And uh, so as they decided to come to church, they, Josh said to me, well, Dad, what, uh, what is your like, ranking as a preacher in the world? And uh, <laughs> that's a complicated question. If you ask my mother, it's very high. <laughs> um, and my wife, probably pretty good, and Katie would be with around where my mom would place me. As for the congregation, don't ask. But I am in a good section of God's Word right now, and uh, John 17 really does demand good sermons. I'm not saying they should be bad after John 17, but uh, John 17 really is, uh, as we say, the inner sanctum where the Son is speaking to the Father, and we get to listen in on a conversation which is very rare in the Gospels and all of God's Word to see uh, the content of what the Son prayed to the Father. So this is a very uh, unique section of God's Word. We looked at verses 1 to 5 last week. We're going to be looking at verses 6 to 10 today. Or not last week, the week before. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them. And they have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I... I'm glorified in them. But let us ask God to bless the reading and preaching of His Word. Our Father, we thank You for these words. They are uh, words that we pray we will understand not just the content, but the, the essence of Christ's heart as He still continues this ministry towards us in heaven. Bless us now as He has prayed for these things to be true. May they be true of us now here on earth. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. I said to a family member this morning, um, could you tell me what I share with my father that he has taught me that I've delivered uh, to others? And uh, I'll let you know, my, my children like to sleep in, so it wasn't them I was speaking with. And this family member uh, after a bit of deliberation, said, well, some of the, the, the qualities that your father has, he didn't, you don't really exhibit those, uh, which is quite funny uh, when your wife tells you uh, that you don't exhibit the, the few qualities that your dad has in her mind. And uh, that led to a crisis of whether I was, in fact, adopted uh, on my way to preach my first sermon. I've since come around and believe that uh, there are some signs, tangible ones, 
But the point was to say that um, there is a lot going on in these verses. And one of the themes that really struck me, and we will get to this a little bit later, is uh, the sense in which Jesus Christ learned from the Father and was able, therefore, to take everything that he learned and received and bless the church. And you will see that as we look at these verses. Now, uh, that begins, as it were, in verse 6. Jesus makes this point about manifesting the name of God. And the name of God is not just his name, as though you can say, oh, Uh, the Father is Yahweh and that's manifesting His name. No, Jesus manifests God's name as the visible image of the invisible God. He is the one who reveals the Father. He speaks of who the Father is, what He has done, what He is doing. In other words, Jesus is the mouthpiece of God. Everything in this world that is true, that you know of God, comes through the Son. In fact, Even the creation of this world was through the Son. The author of Hebrews chapter 1 says that all things were created by Him. Paul will say in Colossians 1.16 that all things were created by Christ and for Christ. He is the great prophet of the world. He's the Logos. God speaks, but He only speaks through Jesus Christ. Which is why we believe, as I have said many times before from this pulpit, that this is a red-letter Bible from Genesis to Revelation. This is entirely the words of the Son spoken to the church. So, if you were to open up anywhere in God's Word, wherever you open up, you should be able to find your way to Jesus Christ. Not just in the Gospels, but beginning in Genesis, all the way through God's Word, it is the mouthpiece of Christ. And He is revealing the Father. But what's interesting is as He reveals the Father, the Father reveals the Son. So He makes this claim. I have manifested Your name to people whom You gave Me out of the world. He is telling the Father something the Father already knows. Now you need to understand this about your prayers. When you pray to God, He already knows what you're going to say. Go home today and speak a thousand words to the Father. He knows what you are going to say now, even though you are going to say it hours from now. That is because He is God. He's not surprised by your prayers. He doesn't say, how am I going to fit this into my plan now? He is God. And Jesus knew that, and yet it doesn't keep Jesus from actually telling the Father things He already knows. I have manifested Your name to people whom You gave Me out of the world. And that's an interesting phrase that occurs time and time again in John. You can see a different type of phrase in Paul where he'll talk about chosen in Christ, election in Christ. But here, John uses the phrases of being given to Christ. The Father gives people to Christ. So here, they have been given out of the world. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Yours they were. The Father chooses these people. They belong to the Father, but He doesn't just choose people. He chooses them in Christ. He gives us to Christ. And you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. 
On a first reading, you probably won't be as surprised at the last few words of verse 6 as you should be. Now, if you reread it and reread it, and then you actually read the rest of the chapters in John, and you read the previous chapters in John, you might be forgiven for thinking that perhaps there is a word or two missing. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have not kept your word. Why do I say that? Because from one vantage point, we could actually make a very strong claim that the disciples that he is speaking of here are those who did not keep God's word. There were many rebukes to the disciples over the course of Christ's ministry. And I had a uh, family visiting uh, from Chicago and uh, the gentleman texted me uh, earlier this week and he says, I'm expecting a Spurgeon or Lloyd-Jones quote. So naturally I decided not to. But J.C. Ryle makes an important point. And you can at least understand J.C. Ryle. How weak was their faith? How slender their knowledge at this point in time. How shallow their spiritual attainments. How faint their hearts in the hour of danger. Yet, a very little time after Jesus spoke these words, they all did what? They all forsook Him and fled. And one of them denied Him three times under an oath, calling down a curse upon Himself. No one can read the four Gospels and fail to see that never had such a great master, such weak servants as Jesus had in the eleven apostles. Yet these very weak servants were the men of whom the gracious head of the church, Jesus Christ, speaks here in high and honorable terms. They have kept your Word. This is what is called God's gracious condescension. There are two bars. There's the bar of justification where you have to keep God's law perfectly, perpetually, intensely in a way that only Jesus Christ could ever have kept. And if we were to measure each and every one of us based on that bar alone, we would all be in trouble. That is why we're justified by faith alone. But in the bar of sanctification, God condescends and stoops so low that He accepts us even in our weakness, even in our imperfection, and actually will credit to us in our imperfections things that seem quite remarkable. My boys, Matthew and Thomas, brought home, as uh, children invariably do, uh, they brought home something that they had made. And they got their report cards and uh, the art section I'm never too uh, concerned about with all due respect to the great artists in our midst. And they brought home these coffee mugs recently. These are the most hideous coffee mugs I have ever seen in my life. They are massive. I'm going to start a museum and place these coffee mugs in the museum and say, come and see the ugliest coffee mugs that have ever been made. I mean, you can barely lift this pottery. And the handle, and you know, Matthew didn't even want to show us. I mean, the guy's got some sort of self-awareness at least. <laughs> Thomas's was not bad. Matthew's, oh, good thing he can kick a ball. And you know what? I love these hideous coffee mugs. 
I hope they don't fall apart, at least for a few weeks. And I hope that someone here will come by one day, maybe Christina, and she comes to teach wonderful things to Katie of biology and all the rest. She will look upon this coffee mug and remember the sermon whereby she says, that is a hideous coffee mug, Pastor Mark. And yet, how can you love such a hideous coffee mug? Because who made the coffee mug? My children made it. And they brought it home for me. And I will never drink out of it, I can assure you. I'm not ready to die. But I love it nonetheless. And God looks down upon a bunch of hideous coffee mugs. Now I'm talking about you and myself. And He loves them. They have kept your word. He could have said they have not kept your word, but He doesn't. He says, they have kept your word at a point where they weren't exactly the most startling disciples of faith and obedience and love that the world has ever seen. But he prays that because Christ considers the big picture. Now, as he continues, what does he say about those who have kept his word? They know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. You see, the big issue for the disciples was not getting them to believe in God. From the time they came out of the womb to the time they died, they were so thoroughly immersed in the concept that Yahweh, Jehovah, was the true God of Israel. That was never an issue. The big issue for them was whether Jesus Christ was God's Messiah. And most people did not actually believe that. Most people rejected Him. So the great prayer that Christ has here is the prayer that they really believed that everything that Jesus said was based upon the authority of the Father. And so to believe in Jesus was actually to truly believe in the God they had always claimed to believe. And this was the momentous aspect of Christianity that Jesus Christ is God's Messiah. And notice how Jesus understands Himself. Verse 7, They know that everything that You have given Me is from You. Remember when John the Baptist says in chapter 3, I think it's verse 27, A man can receive nothing unless it is given to him from above. That was actually true of Jesus Christ. That was true of the words that He was given to speak. That was true of the miracles he was equipped to do. That was true of the air that He breathed, the food that He ate, the water that He was able to drink. Everything that Jesus received was from the hand of the Father. Not just His Messianic identity, but everything. A man can receive nothing, even the God-man, Jesus Christ, unless it is given to Him from above. And so He says, I have given them. The things that You have given Me, I have given to them. I have given them the words that You gave Me. Most importantly, He has given them words. Could Jesus have given other things? Yes. Could Jesus have given them wealth and riches? Yes. But He gave them words. God had one Son and He made Him a minister. To speak and to preach. I have given them the words that You gave Me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from You, and they have believed that You have sent Me. 
Now, who are these people? Well, these are people that Jesus has specifically prayed for. Notice in verse 9, I am praying for them. And I see this as most especially in this context, the apostles, but they are representative of the people of God because as it goes on, you'll see that it can't clearly just mean the apostles. I am not praying for the world. In other words, I am not praying for every single human being who is alive or will be alive or who has been alive. I am praying for a special group of people. I am praying for those whom you have given me. So before the foundation of the world, the Father gives to the Son a gift. The gift is the bride of Christ, the church, the people of God. And Jesus as the high priest then prays for them. Is it true that Jesus could have prayed for everyone? Yes, as a man, He would have had a duty to pray for everyone. We pray for everyone in certain ways. But this prayer is not for everyone. This is a prayer for the people who have been given to the Son. He says that explicitly. I am not praying for everyone in the world, but especially and only for those who have been grifted to me, granted to me, graciously given, for they belong to you. They are the Father's, and the Father has entrusted into the hands of the Son you and I. That's what he's saying. And so he's going to take care of us. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. Now if you thought the words in verse 6 and they have kept your words are shocking upon further reflection, let me assure you that verse 10 is something that really if it had not been written I would not believe. If it had not been spoken by Christ, I would not believe it to be true. These are some of the most important words in the Scriptures, I believe. For your understanding of God, for your understanding of Christ, for your understanding of the church, if you can understand verse 10, you're going to come a very long way indeed in your Christian walk. Why is that? Those words, I am glorified in them. The way in which the Bible speaks about God's people is better than the way in which we speak about God's people. Do you know that? If you were to actually look at the way in which the New Testament speaks about the people of God and the designations placed upon Christians, they are far greater than what we do in our daily speak. Our daily speak is maybe too negative to self-loathing, to oh, defeatist. People are called righteous. People are called saints. People walk up to me all the time. I know they're Christians. I go, oh, here is saint, and I call them their name. And they kind of laugh. Oh, don't be silly, Pastor Mark. I'm like, what, is your theology that bad? Or are you a Roman Catholic? I don't know. We're called righteous. We're called holy. We're called pure in heart. We're called slaves of righteousness. We are called a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. That is what Christ is speaking about here. That you may do what? Declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. In other words, I am glorified in the people who will declare the praises of God. I am glorified in them. 
There's a passage, and the authors in the New Testament have different ways of conveying these truths. In Ephesians chapter 1, a lot of people don't get to this verse because, you know, they read about all of these wonderful truths of election, predestination, and the spilling of blood and all that. But you get to verse 23 of Ephesians chapter 1, and there's a phrase there that's really quite remarkable. It speaks of the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him, the fullness of Jesus Christ who fills all in all. The church is called the fullness of Jesus Christ. In other words, what we're being told here is that we are Christ's fullness. He is empty, as the Puritans would say, Jesus Christ is empty without us. So that's the remarkable thing about the New Testament is Jesus is saying He is glorified in the church or the church completes Jesus Christ. He could say, I am glorified in my divine nature. And that would be true. God is glorious. He is glory. And that glory is so consuming that no man has ever seen or could see the glory without falling down dead. He could say, I am glorified in my naked divinity. He could even have said, I am glorified in my person as God-man, my human nature, I'm glorified. He's the visible image of the invisible God. He's chief among 10,000. He's the exact radiance of the image of God. The, the, the perfect one in which we behold the face of the Father in Jesus Christ. He could have said that too. And he would have been right. But he says instead, I am glorified not in my divinity, not even in my identity as God-man, I am glorified in the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. And we have some points of application then that result from this. And the first is this, and there's a phrase that maybe you've heard of. I don't quite like it. One of the sad things about reading so much theology is you, have to, you then start seeing all of the bad theology. And ignorance is bliss is actually kind of true. But there's this phrase, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. And that actually comes from Luther, who is a fine man, by the way. Just don't read him too carefully, especially his table talk. Um, and people go, yeah, I like that. That really misses the essence of what the New Testament is all about. Of course God does not need our good works, and of course our neighbor does, but that's not really what the New Testament is getting at in terms of why we would ever do anything. The issue is, does Christ need to be glorified in our lives? I am glorified in them. Does Christ need our good works? On the one hand, no. On the other hand, yes. We're His bride. We bring glory to Him. We're the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. Does He fill us so that we can fill Him? Yes. Does He grant to us so that we can glorify Him? Yes. But we nevertheless are to glorify God. Why do you do anything? It's not so you can say, oh, God doesn't need my good works, but my neighbor does. It's so that you can say primarily, I am here to glorify God. Christ. Arthur Wellesley, the Duke of Wellington, has this quote. He says, the French system of conscription brings together a fair sample of all classes. Ours, the English, 
however, is composed of the scum of the earth. If you look at history of conscription in Britain versus France, it's different. Ours is composed of the scum of the earth, the mere scum of the earth, but it doesn't end there. He says, it is only wonderful that we should be able to make so much out of them afterwards. And I thought that's really a description of what the church is. The church is composed of what? The mere scum of the earth. It is only so wonderful that God should be able to make so much out of us afterwards. Because we are placed on this earth to do what? Glorify Christ. I am glorified in them. And He has prayed for that. He has prayed that you would glorify Christ. I want you also to remember as you look at this, if you look at the way in which God looks upon us and Christ looks upon us and how He says to His disciples who are about to break His Word, about to show faithlessness, about to sin, they have kept Your Word, that we should remember the grace shown to us by Christ is the same grace we should show towards others. Richard Sibbs was a Puritan and he has this quote and the people earlier liked it, so I hope you will. No pressure. He says, Men must not be too curious in prying into the weakness of others. We should labor rather to see what they have that is for eternity. So when you look at people around you or fellow Christians, don't be too curious into prying into all of their weaknesses. Rather labor to see what will last for eternity and incline our heart to love them than instead of looking into that weakness which the Spirit of God will in time consume. Isn't that wonderful? Think about looking at people in the church and you look at some of their weaknesses. You should actually look and say, you know what, the Spirit of God's going to consume that weakness one day. It'll be gone. Done. That's going to be in my next book, Keys to a Long Ministry. How do you stay in a church so long, Pastor Mark? Oh, well, I look at all of the wicked people around me and I say, the Spirit of God's going to consume all of those wicked things one day. After I first applied it to myself, naturally. But it's true. Then he adds, the Holy Spirit is content. More content than we are, I might add. The Holy Spirit is content to dwell in smoky, offensive souls. Jonathan Edwards, actually, his daughter, there was a young man who came to ask for his daughter's hand, and Jonathan Edwards said, there, is, there are some people with whom only the Holy Spirit can dwell, and ushered the young man away. I'm going to use that line. <laughs> The Holy Spirit is content to dwell in smoky, offensive souls. They have kept your word. I am glorified in them. If God can show us that grace, and it is real grace, that is not meant to terminate upon you, but that is meant to be the way in which you learn how to show that type of grace to others, which brings me to my final point. What is the word that really dominates this section? 
I asked my children that. We were sitting around and I read I said, I just want you to think about what's the one word that seems to come up that dominates this section. And thankfully, one of the smart kids uh, got it right. I have four of them. Um, and you see, that's taking the sermon and applying it, right? Uh, thinking of them so great. Well, what is that word? Read from verse 6 to 10. What is the one word? And the word is either gave or given. You read verses 6 to 10. Gave, 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 given, given, given. You could say to Jesus as you go home and pray, Dear Jesus, why have you given me so much? And what would his answer be? It could very well be because I learned from the best. I learned from my Father who gave me all things into my hand, who gave me all things including you. He gave me everything. And He gave me everything so that I might give to my bride everything, so that I may beautify my bride, for I am glorified in my bride. What's the sermon title? Don't marry an ugly bride. Marry a beautiful one. And I'm doing lots of weddings this year. Good grief. I, I, got, I got an email two days ago. Henry, can you believe it's getting married? Unbelievable. I don't know who to, but he's getting married. And the thing about marriages is two things happen. And I said this at Dylan's wedding. A man ages seven years the day he gets married. He has to mature that quickly. All the tomfoolery, all the ballyhoo, all the shenanigans are over to a certain extent. You have to age seven years. So, all of you guys getting married, you're going to age seven years this year. But another thing happens. Every single bride I've ever seen enhances her beauty sevenfold. Now, that may be offensive in a certain sense. But it actually is true. God does something on the wedding day of a bride where their beauty just is enhanced and they look beautiful. I've never yet seen an ugly bride. Never. I hope not to this year. <laughs> there goes my sermon. And the reason that is, is because I believe it is so etched into God's purpose for this world that he expects a beautiful bride for His Son. And that is the point of what Christ is praying for. I want a beautiful bride. I am glorified in them. The fullness of Christ who fills everything in every way. And Jesus can be so confident of a beautiful bride because He is so confident that the Father has given Him all things for Him to share, not to keep, with His bride and thus make them like Himself and like the Father. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we thank You for the words of Christ which teach us so much, but humble us to the core of our being that smoky, offensive souls of which there is still a great degree of smoke and offense in all of us, should be filled with grace from on high.
should be indwelt by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and should be those who glorify Jesus Christ. O Lord, we pray that we may do so, so that he may receive the due reward for his work. And what a mystery that we should be that reward. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.